Good morning, church. Good to see all of you here today. We're in a little series here um, in November that we're calling The Generosity of the King. Uh, In this season of Thanksgiving, in this season of church stewardship, it seemed fitting that we would think about giving from the Gospel of Luke. And last week, we saw how Jesus calls us to give uh, to the church and to his mission, and especially to the poor. And this week, we're turning our gaze to look at in what ways and how Jesus calls us to give to the state or to the government, yet another institution that God has made. And we're going to look at Jesus' famous phrase, give back or render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And this provokes hard questions, like what is the role of Christians in our relationship to the government? What are we called to give to the state? How does that comport or contrast to our giving and commitments to God? And can we just sort of (laughs) breathe and come out and just talk honestly with one another and say how relevant this is? for the moment that we are in right now. This has been one of the most divisive and dramatic and even traumatic election cycles that any of us can ever remember. And I have had conversations with many of you this week whose reactions have ranged from jubilation to despair to just general confusion. And, you know, it would be vocational malpractice for me to stand up here (laughs) and not address the moment that we are in together, sisters and brothers. What do we make of our time? How do we understand our political moment? What is our role as the community of Jesus? This is an important, vital moment for us to look to Jesus, to look to his word, and how he calls us to move forward together. So let me pray. Holy God, Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are the Lord. Thank you that you reign over all. Thank you for your word that speaks with power for us today. Thank you for Jesus who speaks so simply yet so profoundly to us. Help us to hear his voice even today. Help me and help all of us by the power of your spirit that we might not just hear your word but respond to it with obedience and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear these words from Luke 20, verses 20 through 26. Keeping a close watch on Jesus, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, teacher, We know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So tell us, teacher, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus saw through their duplicity. And he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then... Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. What is going on in this little famous episode here? Verse 20 says, they sent spies. 
Who is the they that sent spies? The they are two groups of Jewish religious leaders, we learn from the Gospel of Mark. The first is the Herodians, who were supporters of the Roman imperial power. And the second are the Pharisees, who were not. These were two groups on opposite sides of the political spectrum, yet they were united around one common thing, their hatred of Jesus. And so they came to Jesus and they posed to him this hot political question of the day in order to trap Jesus. Tell us, teacher, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this was a very dangerous question for Jesus to answer. Because either way, he answered yes or no, he had something pretty serious to lose. If, on the one hand, he said, yes, pay your taxes, then he would be seen to be siding with the Herodians and a supporter of the Roman occupation, and in doing so, he would lose all of his very wide support among the people. But if he were to say, no, don't pay the taxes, then he would be seen as a political revolutionary, and the leaders could report him as someone inciting sedition against the state and have him arrested and even killed. So either way, <laughs> they think we've got him. He will either lose his popularity or he will lose his life. But either way, he, is lose. he will lose. <laughs> but they do not know Jesus. They do not know who they are dealing with. Oh, beautiful Jesus. Brilliant Jesus. And Jesus does know that, indeed, the Father's will is for him to lose both his popularity and his life, but he knows that now is not the moment. And so he answers with this brilliant answer, an answer so simple that it can be spoken in a single phrase, yet so powerful that it has shaped the theological and political philosophy of the church for two millennia. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. And they fell silent. What is Jesus saying to us here? What is he calling us to give as his people? I just want to look at three simple things with you that Jesus is calling us to. I believe in this passage. He's saying, first, that we give to the state our limited allegiance. We do indeed. We give to the state our limited allegiance. Second, we give to God our ultimate adherence. And third, we give to the world our generous presence. So let's look at those things. First, we give to the state our limited allegiance. Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, in all the commentators that I read this week, all of them pointed out that the fact that Jesus chose this word render is remarkable and brilliant. It literally means to give what is owed, or translated in the NIV as we read this morning, give back. It's brilliant because it has a double meaning. First of all, Jesus is clearly instructing his people to give the government our support and, their, and our loyalty. He's saying, unequivocally, yeah, pay your taxes. Participate in the public system. Be engaged. There were many Jewish communities at the time, especially the Essenes, who encouraged, because of the Roman occupation, for the Jews to move out into the desert and to reject the secular society. And Jesus clearly said, no, no. Give to Caesar what is his. Pay your taxes. Contribute. Participate. He calls his leaders to be good citizens in the public realm and to support the leader that is in place. And this directive from Jesus is clearly taken up by his followers throughout the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 13, pay to all what is owed, taxes to whom taxes, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor is owed. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, honor everyone, fear God, honor the emperor. Paul even takes us beyond respect and taxes and calls us to pray for our leaders, which is a remarkable thing considering most of them were trying to kill him. 
<laughs> but, he, but he says in 1 Timothy 2, pray for the leaders. A, prayer is a powerful form of love. So listen, friends, if Paul could urge followers of Jesus to support the oppressive Roman government, then there is no government today, no matter how corrupt, no matter what the kind of government it is, that Christians cannot recognize and support. So we see Christians are those who, regardless of how you feel about the elected leader, we are called to be good citizens and to contribute and to work for the common good of all and to pray. And so we pray for President Obama, that God would give his wisdom. We pray for President-elect Donald Trump. We pray that God would give him wisdom. We contribute. We are good citizens because this is what clearly Jesus calls us to do. But on the other hand, Jesus also uses this word render, which means to give a person what is owed. And what was owed to Caesar by those Christians? Yes, taxes, but also resistance. Because this is a man who claimed to be God. He was, a, he was in a long line of leaders who claimed to be the choice of the gods. Therefore, you cannot question us. Give us absolute authority. So with this simple answer, Jesus essentially births the modern theory of limited government. He says, no, 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 no. No government can be equated with God. And don't you ever dare suggest so. Give Caesar only what he is owed. Only his money, but do not give him anything beyond what he demands that contravenes your commitment to me and my kingdom. Do you see the brilliance of this? In a single answer, Jesus refuses to give either one of these groups what they wanted, which was for him to take sides in their political debate. And he refuses. He refuses because his agenda and his kingdom cannot be reduced to any simple political program. My kingdom is not of this world, as he says to Pilate in John 18. Therefore, his kingdom cannot be equated with a, a party or a platform or, a, or an earthly state or kingdom or ruler. As Scott Sauls put it, Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over, y'all. He came to take over. And what does this mean for us as followers of Jesus? It means, hear me on this, sisters and brothers, it means that Christians are called, in, and Christians have always lived this way, to have an ambiguous relationship with political power. We have an ambiguous relationship with political power. Christians live in every nation state under heaven. We give our loyalty to those states, but we do not give our ultimate loyalty to any party or platform or earthly nation. We must never do what Jesus refused to do, to say Jesus is for that party or that policy or that person. No, every party has things we can affirm, and every political party has things that Christians must resist. Are you pro-life or are you pro-immigrant? Are you pro-family or are you pro-creation care? Yes, we refuse to be reduced to such binaries. There are no parties that can be called the Christian party. There are no platforms that can be called the Christian platform. There are no nations that can be called a Christian nation because no nation can ever embody the fullness of the kingdom of God. Even our own nation, even our own nation that was indeed influenced by Christian ideals and has certain elements that we celebrate and model to the world because they were influenced by Christian principles, is the same nation that enslaved nine million of its own citizens based on a blasphemous theology of human personhood. So we affirm, yes, and we resist. That's what Jesus instructs his followers to do. That's what we do as his people. The night of the election, Joe Carter, the editor of the Evangelical Gospel Coalition, tweeted, whoever wins the presidency, tomorrow I will congratulate their supporters and then cheerfully take my place as part of the loyal opposition. Indeed, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, that would be our calling, church. With Donald Trump elected, 
That is our calling, church. We render what is owed. We give our loyalty, but it is a limited loyalty. We give our allegiance, but it is a qualified allegiance. As followers of Jesus, there will be things in the months and years ahead that we can affirm, that uphold life and justice and compassion and dignity. And then there will be things that we must resist as well, that denigrate life and distort the image of God and neglect justice and mercy, especially for the vulnerable. And that would be the case if any ruler was elected and will be the case in every election until you die. This is what every Christian community has done in every nation under heaven. We are the loyal opposition. We offer our limited allegiance. We pray, we work, we contribute to our state. We are good citizens, but we give our ultimate allegiance to King Jesus who calls us to bear witness to the truth of his kingdom, which is overall. So that's the first thing. We give to the state our limited allegiance. But second, we give to God our ultimate adherence. Jesus' second affirmation is give to God's or render to God's what is God's. He asks to look at a coin, and he says, whose image is on it? Caesar's, okay? Give him what's his. Give him the money. And of course, the question that he's implying is, Whose image is on you? God's. And therefore, what to give to God? Everything. Your full, ultimate adherence. We said the Apostles' Creed today, which is sort of the Pledge of Allegiance of the church. It's striking to remember that the earliest creed of the church is even shorter. Actually, just two words. Iesos kurios. Have you heard that, young people? Iesus kurios. Did you ever learn that? Oh, too bad. I'm teaching it to you now. Iesus kurios, which is Greek for Jesus is Lord. Guess who else called himself kurios when they wrote that creed? Caesar. Caesar's kurios. Caesar is Lord. Caesar demanded ultimate allegiance and commitment. In the face of that claim, Christians said, no. The Son of God and the incarnate word of the Father stands against and over all human kingdoms and demands our ultimate allegiance. Jesus and his kingdom is the only one that lasts forever. All the kingdoms of the world, friends, all of them that have exalted themselves as the final authority from Caesar to Herod to Diocletian, all of these kingdoms have toppled and fallen. They are dead in the grave, assigned a place in the dust of history, and yet Jesus reigns in his kingdom endures forever of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. And so what does this mean for us? Well, I believe it shapes our hopes. Our hope for ourselves and our hope for the world is not in a party or a person or a program or a president, but in Jesus who reigns over all. Among the reactions to the election this week that I have witnessed among Christians, I believe I have seen that we are a Christian community that has put far too much salvation in political power. It is revealed that for many followers of Jesus, politics has become a religion, an idol in which we have invested our hopes. So on the one side, we've heard language of this being our so-called last chance to restore America, a fear-driven panic that has now opened up into a cathartic jubilation as if the kingdom of God has come. And on the other side, we hear apocalyptic proclamations of doom, declarations of cosmic unraveling, sending us over the brink. But behind both of these reactions is the same shared belief that meaningful change only comes through political power. And that is a lie. We have put our salvation in a system of politics, and we believe our lies, our lies will stand or fall on a person of flesh. Brothers and sisters, do you see what this does to us? I mean, at the very least, it, 
It, it does great harm to, to the vulnerable ones among us, the children among us, even ourselves. Political power is an anemic vehicle for carrying out the agenda of Jesus. In fact, history has shown the more power Christians have, the more misguided and conformed to the world we become. So hold, friends, hold to the king. Hold to King Jesus. If things went your way this week and you're happy, hold to King Jesus. Have some perspective. We only need and only have one Messiah, and he did not win this election. If you are despairing, friends, hold, hold to Jesus. We only need and only have one Messiah, and he did not lose this election. This election and this moment in history will also, along with all others, be relegated to the dust of human history, but the kingdom of Jesus endures forever. Do you hear me? One other thing about our adherence to Jesus, friends. Because our ultimate loyalty is to Jesus, it also means this, that our ultimate relational loyalty is to the people of Jesus, the community of Jesus. Christians are not a voting block. We are a countercultural community, one that spans nations and cultures and classes. And because we belong to Jesus, we belong to each other. We are called to identify with one another during this moment more than we identify with anyone else. Friends, the division in our nation is astonishing, is it not? This election reveals just how tribalized we all are and how unable and unwilling we are to hear one another. Yet the church is called to be different. Different, friends. We are an international community that spans history and nations. We are those made up of every kind of person that God has made. And we must hear and love one another. Some of you who are despairing, you may not have heard the cries of the white working class or the older generations that brought us to this place. Some of you who are rejoicing, you may not be hearing some of the anxieties and the concerns of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that I myself have heard this week. I've heard from black and Latino and Middle Eastern brothers and sisters who are anxious. I've heard from disabled brothers and sisters who are upset. I've heard from sisters who have suffered sexual abuse who are scared. We must hear one another. We must bear one another's burdens and embody a reconciled community because we are not a voting block. We are not a coalition. We are a body, a body that is white and black and Latino and Asian and male and female, rich and poor. Therefore, what affects one part must affect the other. We belong to each other because we belong to Jesus. And let me just say this, friends. If we feel more at home with people who share our politics but not our faith, then we very well may have rendered to Caesar what only belongs to God. So as we move forward, let us remember who we are, dear church that I love. Let us remember, please. We are not first Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or progressives. We are not even first Americans. We are first the church, the people of the resurrected Jesus who reigns over all, who reigns over all. And to him and him alone do we give our final and ultimate adherence. So we give to the state our limited allegiance. We give to the state our final allegiance and adherence. But finally, one last thing, we, we, we give to the world our generous presence. One of the most amazing elements of this passage is often overlooked, and that's the fact that Jesus didn't have any loose change. Isn't that kind of funny? <laughs> I mean, Jesus didn't even have a coin. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, and so I think what, what Luke is doing is he's portraying this contrast between these two kings. So here is this one king on the coin 
who is exalted as Lord, and here is this other king, this very different kind of king, one king who lives in the palace, another king who lives on the streets, one king who has all the silver and gold, and another king who doesn't even have a nickel, one king who rules through power and force, another king who rules through mercy and suffering love. Have you ever seen a king like that? Tim Keller points out that no politician can do a single thing until they win the election and get power. And when a politician loses or retires or dies, it's the end of his or her impact. Yet for Jesus, beautiful Jesus, it is the exact opposite. When Jesus dies, his revolution begins. When Jesus loses, his spirit-filled kingdom people are saved and activated and sent into the world. Jesus, the king, friends, wins by losing, triumphs by dying, reigns not from a throne, but from the cross, the cross. And he's done this for you. As we said last week, the rich Christ who owns all and is ruler over all has made himself poor so that you, a poor sinner, might become rich so that you can be a citizen in his forever kingdom. And so now for those of us who are citizens of his kingdom, through his blood-bought sacrifice, we live for the world as Jesus has lived for us. Do you know all the revolutions in human history have started when people have taken power, but the revolution of Jesus when people give their power away. The kingdom of Jesus never advances through spin or political maneuvering or the seizure of power. It always advances through subversive acts of suffering love. As an example of this, in early Rome, when the plague broke out and began killing many, many people and the streets began to fill with the sick and the dying, the Christians, instead of running away, went into the streets. Can you believe it? They went into the streets to care for the dying. And to help them die with dignity and even take on their disease upon themselves. In that, early, in that early culture, babies, many girl babies were left to die. And the Christians adopted them and brought them into their own families. Women and widows in that society were treated as objects to be used. And in the church, they were dignified and cared for. In a society in which the poor were trampled and abused, Christians freely gave their money and their time and their homes. And let me tell you what happened in this beautiful, quiet way. As common Every day, ordinary Christians simply lived for Jesus, giving away their time, giving away their money, giving away their homes, giving away everything. That entire Greco-Roman society changed. And it was not through power. It was through suffering love. Earthly kingdoms, make no mistake, earthly kingdoms always overpromise and they always underdeliver. But the kingdom of Jesus takes over through the most countercultural ways as his people love their neighbors and seek the shalom of the city and care for the weakest members of society and give their money and their time and their lives away for Jesus, their neighbors, and the world. So third church, my dear brothers and sisters, I love you so much. And I want to urge us together, may we not forget this vision. It is time for the church to be the church. This has been the call of the church in every age, in every nation, in every political environment in history. We are not at home in any country, yet we make our home in every land. As Mark Deaver said, we are like cockroaches who thrive and flourish in every place under heaven, from the age of Caesar to Nero to the Taliban to the kings of Europe to the USA. We do not need political power to do this work. We do not need the backing of the state to carry out the revolution of Jesus in the world. We only need one thing. 
Jesus Christ and the spirit of God that he gives us, even now in abundance. So what do you need to do today, my dear friends? What do we need to do? Many of us need to repent of our idolatry, of political power that is exhibited either through our jubilation or our despair. Many of us may need to temper either our celebration or our despair to listen to a brother or sister to join our hearts to them in love. And all of us need to see all that we have in Jesus, the riches of God at Christ's expense, that we might be filled with a fresh conviction to take all that we have and all that we are and to give it freely and generously for the good of our neighbor and the good of the world. What do you need today, my dear brother, my dear sister? Jesus will give us all and more we ever need because he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. I just invite you in these moments of silence to respond to any way that you might be feeling right now or sensing that God might be calling you to respond, whether it's through confession or thanksgiving or renewal of hope, casting off of fear, whatever it might be. Thank you, Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are the God who reigns over all, and that in your hands we and all your people are secure forever in the kingdom of Christ. Pray that you would make us these kinds of people who support and pray and live as good citizens and work for the kingdom and seek the kingdom in our society, but who ultimately give our allegiance to Jesus and to him alone and invest in him all of our hopes. Help all of us, we pray in all of our various needs, in and through the name of Jesus, our King, and the one who reigns over all, we pray. Amen.